If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of John. Okay, we're going to do a lot like we did last week. We're going to start in the Gospel of John, but then we're going to finish in the book of Genesis. Genesis is not difficult to find. That's the first book of the Bible. We're actually going to be looking in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, so it shouldn't be too difficult to find. Uh, But we're going to start in the Gospel of John. And John is a little bit more difficult. It's the fourth Gospel of the New Testament. Um, So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're going to be in the first chapter of John, so you can go ahead and turn there. See, at Christmas time, it's typical that we'll go to the Gospels and read the story. Uh, For many of you, you're going to read Luke chapter 2, maybe today as a family, maybe tomorrow as a family. It's a good practice to get into. Uh, If not, maybe you're reading it as a church, maybe uh, throughout the church season or or work season or whatever the case may be. Luke chapter 2 is often referred to because it is a detailed description of the birth of Christ, which is the Christmas story. Some of you, you get bored with going to Luke chapter 2, so you go to Matthew chapter 1. Um, So a lot of us would try to read Matthew chapter 1. It's not as descriptive. It's not as detailed. But those are the two places we typically go when we're wanting to to learn or to read about the Christmas story. Okay, So we go to the Gospels, and we go there for good reason. Because the Gospel writers, they talk about the conception of Christ. They talk about the birth of the baby, Jesus, in Bethlehem. They talk about the Christmas story. But few of us, if any of us, would actually go to the Gospel of John. Here's what's interesting, though, is John goes back further than the conception of Christ. John goes all the way back to creation. And what we're going to do today is we're going to see what Jesus or what John says about Jesus in his first chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. We're going to read that together. We're going to talk about that a little bit, and then we're going to flip over to the book of Genesis. So the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, I've told you before, I told you last week, that Christmas is deeply theological, and it is. There is a lot of theology in Christmas. Now, theology for a lot of people, not saying it should, just saying it's a reality, it bores you to tears. But we need to understand that theology, what we believe about God, shapes everything else that we do. If we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we really believe that God alone occupies the throne, then it will indeed shape all of our behaviors and our actions from our daily lives. And what you're seeing here is that John is diving into the depths of theology, sharing with us who this Jesus is. There's really two things I want you to see in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. First, John says that the Word was with God. He says that the Word was with God. The Greek for with God means presence with the Father. So what John is saying is is that the Word was present with the Father in the beginning. Now, why is that important? It's important because what John is doing is he's differentiating between the Word and God. And as soon as you as the reader start to make sense of this, okay, so you're telling me that the word is not God, John comes back, and that's the second thing I want you to see. He says it this way. He says, and the word was God. So he doesn't let you get too far before you're, you're, you're completely gone, right? He says the word was with God at the beginning, but he also says that the word was God at the beginning. So what he's saying is that these two are separate. They're separate, 
but they're also the same. Now, you and I, we don't have the capacity to fully understand this, okay? In our little finite minds, we don't have the ability to fully comprehend who God is or what God has even done. But in the best way imaginable, what we can say is that God is fully God, he's fully man, he's separate, but he's also the same. So the word here that John is talking about is a full person, and this full person, he overflows with infinite goodness. And the reason he overflows with infinite goodness is because this full person was with, present with the Father, who is God, at the very beginning. What did he do at the beginning? He created the world, and he created everything in it. That means he created me, and he created you. That's why he overflows with infinite goodness. So he was both with God, the Bible says, and he was God. In other words, he is co-equal. He is indistinguishable, yet he is also distinct. That's the reality of who Jesus is. And by the way, just in case you don't catch it, John actually comes back in verse 14 and he says this. Let's read it together. It says this in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwells among us. So who's the word? The word is Jesus. The word is Emmanuel. The word is God with us. God in human flesh, which of course is Jesus. And the word became flesh, and he says, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. That word only Son can actually be translated as Jesus is the exact same, has the exact same stuff really as the Father. He is the exact same as the Father God. Now, that's who Jesus is. We said last week, we talked a little bit about Jesus' humanity. And as we talked about Jesus' humanity, we dabbed our foot in the water of his deity. This week, we're going to talk a little bit more about his deity, but what you're going to see is we're going to dab our feet in the water of his humanity. Why is that? Why can we not separate Jesus' humanity from his deity? It's because it's inseparable. God is fully God, or Jesus is fully God, and Jesus is fully man. There's no way to compartmentalize them without talking about both of them. So he's fully God, he's fully man. You can't talk about his manhood without talking about his deity. You can't talk about his deity without talking about his humanity. But the question on the table this morning is why does the deity of Jesus matter? Why does the, Jesus, uh, the deity of Jesus matter? Listen, the deity of Christ displays the Father's heart to draw near to us, his people. That's what it does. The fact that Jesus is God puts on full display before a watching world the hearts of God. And what it does is it allows us to draw near to him in two specific ways. First, in order that we might know him. The way that you and I get to know this great God is the fact that God clothed himself in human flesh, walked and lived among the earth that you and, walk, you and I walk and live upon. So he, he relates to us, he becomes relatable in a very intimate way. But it's not only that we might get to know him, but secondly, that we might experience rescuing and redemption as a result of him. That's why he came. We talked about this last week. The interesting thing about Jesus is Jesus came into the world to die, whereas you and I were created and came into the world to live. They're opposite. But yet because of sin, we die, and Jesus came to, to, to die to conquer our sins so that we might live. That's the whole gospel in a nutshell. So why does this actually matter? What I want to do today is I want to show you the very heart of God. That's what I want to do. I want to show you the heart of God, and then I want you to see how his heart was manifested to us 
through the person of his son. Matt read just a moment ago out of 1 John talking about how God manifested his love through the sending of his son. And that's what we're going to talk about really this morning. I want to show you the heart of God first. And then in conclusion today, what I want you to see is how God manifests that heart through the sending of his son. So I love here how John starts off by taking us back to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis chapter 1. He says two times, once in verse 1, once in verse 2 of John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and then he comes back in verse 2 and he says he was in the beginning with God. He's taking you all the way back to Genesis. So if you have your Bible, let's flip all the way back to the book of Genesis, very first book of your Bible. We're going to be in Genesis, really chapter 3 today. Um, But I'm going to summarize Genesis 1 and 2 for you so that we can talk in great detail about one particular verse in Genesis chapter 3. See, John understood that the very foundation of Christmas was not a baby born in Bethlehem. John understood that the foundation of Christmas goes back further than even that. John understood that the foundation of Christmas goes back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis. Genesis means origins. It tells how life began. It tells how the universe began. But Genesis also tells us how Christmas began. I could almost bet that many of you, if not all of you, when it comes to the Christmas season, don't go and reference Genesis chapter 3 as you're reading as a family or even as a church when it comes to talking specifically about Christmas. So today's going to feel a little bit different, but I think you're going to land the plane the same way you would if you were walking through a different passage of Scripture. So the foundation of Christmas goes back to the beginning in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1 is really just an aerial view of creation. Genesis chapter 2 kind of goes deeper into that view of creation and gives you a little bit more detail and kind of gets closer to ground level a little bit. But Genesis chapter 2, it ends very interestingly. It ends with Adam and Eve enjoying the garden that God created. They're walking around, they're enjoying this garden, but not only are Adam and Eve enjoying the garden that God created, they're actually at the end of Genesis chapter 2 enjoying the God of the garden. That they're enjoying their fellowship with God. The Bible tells us that in Genesis chapter 2, man and woman, Adam and Eve namely, are walking in perfect harmony with God. Sin had not entered the world yet. So there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no sin. The Bible paints it this way in Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve, they're walking in the garden and they are naked and unashamed. They have no reason to have any shame because sin is not in the world. But Genesis chapter 3 opens and suddenly everything begins to change. How do things begin to change? Well, Adam and Eve surrender to the serpent's temptation. And when they submit and surrender to the serpent's temptation, they immediately begin to feel shame. And the Bible tells us that the way that they felt shame, the way that they felt guilt, is that they would go and they would try to sew fig leaves together to hide themselves, to cover themselves. And then even when they heard the footsteps of God in the garden, what did they go and do? They went and hid behind a bush so that he couldn't find them. The Lord walks through the garden. He calls for Adam. He calls for Eve to come out from hiding. And he gives the first announcement of the gospel, the first announcement of Jesus recorded in all of Scripture. And that is right here in Genesis chapter 3, 
verse 15. So I would say it like this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is not only the first announcement of the gospel, but it is also the foundation of Christmas. And we're going to read it together this morning. It says this, I, talking about God, will put enmity or cause hostility, however your translation says that, I will put enmity or cause hostility between you, talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, the serpent shall bruise, or, or he, the, the, the offspring of, of uh, humanity, shall bruise your head, and you, talking to the enemy, shall bruise his heel. Now, on surface, this passage or verse could probably be a little bit difficult for you to translate. We're going to dive into it this morning so you'll have a fuller comprehension of what it actually means. Uh, but what you need to know is that this verse predicts God's mission to redeem the world. It is the first gospel announcement. God is telling you that something's going to happen through the sending of a son, through the sending of an offspring of humanity that is going to save and change the way that everything operates and functions. It predicts God's mission to redeem the world. He will become the offspring of the woman. Jesus will be the representative for all of humanity. And the Bible says that he will bruise the head of Satan. And when he bruises the head, it's a bruise with a deadly blow. That's the picture that's being painted here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is what God is saying to Satan. He's saying there is one who is coming, and this one who is coming is going to be born of a woman, and he will crush your head, Satan. Do you see what God is doing? Only 15 verses after sin has entered the world, God is already saying, I have a remedy I have a solution. I have a way to rescue my people out from their sinful habits, their sinful ways. Already, here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is saying this. He's saying to the enemy, I am declaring war against you. The battle is on. Buckle up your chin strap, bud, because the war is about to begin. But here's the beauty of the text. is he's already telling Satan, by the way, I'm not only declaring war, but I'm also going to win. And when I win, you'll be defeated and you'll have no reign forevermore. The foundation of Christmas is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The birth of Jesus is the climax of the story. That's what we read in Luke chapter 2. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 1. That's what we just read in John chapter 1 as well. The hero is born on Christmas Day to make himself accessible to everyone, everywhere. And that's important. He came to exchange his life for our life. He is the lamb, the long-anticipated lamb of God who will come to take away the sins of the world. That's why the climax of the story is there in the New Testament. But the promise of Christmas, the promise of Christmas is that through the birth of Jesus, through Emmanuel, God with us, humanity will be redeemed. You hear that? It's not stated in the form of a question. It's stated in the, 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 the form of a matter of fact. Humanity will be redeemed. Death will be defeated. And the power of death will be rendered inoperative for every child of God. That is you and that is me. Sin no longer has a reign over you and I if we are in Christ. Death has been defeated because of the finished work of his son, Jesus. Is that not good news to you this morning? It is good news to me. It's okay to clap. Thank you, angel. 
There's really two important things that I want us to recognize this morning. As I said, we're going to talk about the heart of God a little bit. And then what I want you to see at the end is how the heart of God is manifested through the life, really the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus. Two more things. The first one is this. Because Jesus is God, he knows or he fully knows you. Because Jesus is God, he fully knows you. Now let's be honest this morning. Being fully known should strike fear in every single heart in this room. Think about that. That the God of the universe, the God who created everything that your eyes can see, the very God who formed man from the dust of the earth, the same God who formed woman from the rib of a man, The same God who had the capacity to breathe oxygen into their lungs. The same God who in intricate detail formed and fashioned and created you the very way that you are. He's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning he knows everything, all wise. This very God, according to scripture, knows every detail about you. You are fully known by him. That should strike fear in us all. Even the most transparent person in this room would stop short of full disclosure. We would tell you everything that you need to know as long as we're able to save face. I will dump all of my baggage before all of you as long as my reputation wasn't ruined as long as I was still accepted, as long as I'm still approved, as long as I'm still liked after doing so. So even the most transparent in the room will fall short, stop short of full disclosure. The one thing that we are weary of is we will not run the risk of being rejected. So in order to not be rejected, we hide ourselves in fig leaves just enough for you to know us and still like us. And God says, you are fully known by him. In other words, there are no secrets with God. Ma'am, sir, your wife might not know, but your wife isn't seated on the throne and gonna judge you at the end. Your husband might not know But your husband's not seated on the throne, and he's not the judge in the end. Your kids, your boss, they may not know, but they're not seated on the throne and are going to judge you in the end. The one who does know is the one who occupies the throne. He is the final judge when all of this is said and done. And there are no secrets, the Bible says, with him. Genesis tells us that when we were created, we were created to be naked and unashamed. That means we are created to be fully known with absolutely nothing to hide. Why? Because that's what a life of freedom is all about, is to be fully known with absolutely nothing to hide. But this isn't only how it begins. According to Scripture, this is also how it ends. You and I who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, when we are called home to reign and be with Christ forever, we will have that same 
mentality. We'll be naked and not ashamed. We'll be fully known, but we'll be fully known in a perfect new world. The reason, the reason we fear being fully known today is because sin is, in fact, in the world. And because of that sin, we do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We try to hide ourselves. We try to protect ourselves. We, we try to protect you from seeing the true us. We try to hide ourselves just enough for you not to get into the very deep parts of who I am, the crevices of who I am. Because of sin, we hide. We're afraid. We fear rejection. We fear not being accepted. We fear not being approved. We fear being who we were created to be. Listen, ma'am. Listen, sir. God knows everything about you. Everything about you. Again, you have to understand this, that there are no secrets with God. One of the things that we are all prone to do is when something happens that we know we should not be participating in or doing, we try to hide it. Think about it. You go to a computer, you delete the history. You do it on your phone, you try to remove any evidence. We all try to hide it. But you can't hide it from God. God knows. Not only does he know all of your secrets, he also knows all of your sorrows. The things that cause you not to sleep at night. The things that, are rest, that you're wrestling with that are weighing the soul of your life down. He knows every single sorrow that you'll ever encounter or experience. Not only does he know that, but he knows all of your struggles. The struggles of yesterday, the struggles of today, the struggles of tomorrow. He knows them all in great detail. He knows every single thought that will ever travel through your head. He knows every single word that will ever make its way out of your mouth, and even the words that don't make their way out of your mouth. He knows every single desire that you have, good desires and bad desires, desires for things of God and desires for things of the world. He knows every mistake that you have ever made, the mistakes that you don't want anyone to remind you of. God knows them. The greatest mistake that not only you've committed, but anyone's committed against you, God knows it too. He knows all of your failures. He knows where you have fallen short. He knows you. There's no secrets with this God. He knows what you're looking at when it's dark. He knows what you're looking at when it's light. He knows everything about you. There is no hiding. He knows it all. Listen, this should strike great fear in you. It should strike great fear in me. Why? Because this God that we are referring to, the Bible tells us he is a jealous God. He does not share his throne with anyone else or with anything else. And anything or anyone that competes with his glory, he has a way of handling. Not only, though, is this God a jealous God, but he's a God of wrath. We don't talk about that enough in the church today, but he is indeed a God of wrath. He is a final judge. It should strike fear in all of us. That because Jesus is God, he knows you fully. But listen, ma'am, listen, sir. That's not how it ends. There's a second thing you need to know. Because Jesus is God, not only does he fully know you, but because Jesus is God, he fully loves you. Because Jesus is God, he fully loves you. Listen to this. God is so deeply in love with us that he doesn't run from the war. What do you do? What do you do, angel? He runs to you. He enters the war on your behalf. 
That's how loving this God is. This God who knows every detail about you, all of your failures, all of your flaws, all of your sins, all of your secrets, this God doesn't run from you. He runs to you, angel said. And that is such a truth of the gospel. So not only, though, does he enter the war, you remember how I started? But he tells you how the war is going to end. How does it end? Anybody know? He wins. Not only is he going to go to war for you, but he's going to win the war that he's engaged for you. That's the gospel that you and I hold in our hands. God is so holy and so righteous that he will not let evil reign over his creation. And that includes you. The child of God who drifts away, the child of God who deviates away from the word, the child of God who begins to backslide, the child of God who begins to do things their own way in their own time and completely removes themselves from the equation of God. That same child, God doesn't run from. God continues to pursue. God continues to chase. God continues to love. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I love how Romans chapter 5 says it. says it better than I could ever say it. But listen to verses 6 through 8. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm. Who does God love? According to this text, God loves, it says, the weak. It says the ungodly. And it says the sinners. So when you answer the question, who does God love, according to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, it says the weak, the ungodly, the sinners. Who are the weak? The weak are those of us who each and every time Satan tempts us with the same temptation, we fall prey to it. You know who you are. It's all of us. There's one thing that the enemy continues to use to lure you away from the heart of God. And you kick yourself every time you fall prey to it. Why can I not master this? Why can I not accomplish this? Why can I not gain victory in this specific area of my life? We're weak. He says also, not only did he die, does he love the weak, but he loves the ungodly. Those of you who have chosen for yourself to occupy the throne of your own life, you're going to choose what you're going to do, who you're going to do it with, when you're going to do it, why you're going to do it. You're going to make decisions on what you do with your life. It's blatant rebellion against God. It's ungodly. And yet Jesus says, I love you. I love the weak. I love the ungodly. I love the sinners. The sinners are those who have committed gross infractions against the law. It doesn't just mean murder because that's a sin that we consider a gross infraction. It also means the white lie. When you weren't honest on your taxes or when you weren't honest with your wife or your husband or your friends. Who does God love? The weak the ungodly, the sinners. But here's the second question. When does God love them? Look at the verse. For while we were still weak, 
Go down to verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Listen to me, church family. God is not waiting for you to fix your life before he starts loving you. God is not waiting for you. Yeah, you'll, go ahead. God is not waiting for you to clean up your act before he starts loving you. God, God's not waiting for you to get it all together before he starts loving you. God's not waiting for you to quit smoking a cigarette or drinking a beer before he starts loving you. God's not waiting for you to quit cussing before he starts loving you. God's not waiting for you to be fiscally responsible before he starts loving you. God's not waiting for you to clean anything up or to fix anything in your life before he starts loving you. God loves, according to his word, the weak, the ungodly, and the sinner, and he does it while they're weak, ungodly, and sinning. That's who God is. So the question is, why then did Jesus come? He came because God's great love for you. You have to understand that. The Bible tells us that he shows his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A.W. Tozer said it so beautifully, that this God knows the worst about you and is the one who loves you the most. That's who this great God is. I want you to think about the worst thing that you've ever done. And for some of you, that's pretty steep. And yet, God hasn't batted his eye, and his love hasn't fluctuated one single inch. He loves you the same, and he calls you home. And he did everything necessary for you to have a way back to him. And it wasn't through fixing yourself, cleaning up your act, and it wasn't through your own righteousness. It was through the righteousness of his son who came and lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live, but because you didn't, he then went and died the death that was yours to die because it was you who sinned. So that if you place your faith and your trust in the finished work of Jesus, you can reign with him victoriously forever, for all eternity, with God in heaven. Man, that gives us reason to sing. I want you to listen to this in the same way I did last week because I think it gives a whole new spin to some of the things that we do at this time of the year. Listen to this. Based on all of that truth, he knows you fully, he loves you fully. Tim Keller would say he loves you truly. Listen to this. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Now listen to verse 3. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That's how it all happened in, in Genesis chapter 3. That was part of the curse, right? And then he says, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. God is, t is turning the tide here. That's what he's doing. He's saying, you remember that garden that was, that was perfect and beautiful and without sin? You remember how we used to walk in perfect harmony with one another and, and there was no guilt, no shame? Well, that's how it ends, buddy. If you place your faith in the finished work of me when you reign with me forever, that's where we're returning, to a place where there's no sin, there's no guilt, there's no shame as far as the curse is found. 
He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Isn't his love a wonder? What should this do to us? How do we respond to this gospel message? There's three ways, and these three ways are going to sound ridiculously familiar to you. Why? Because they're the same response that we had last week. Response number one, we should recenter our lives on the person of Jesus. When we come into contact with how great God's love is for us and how he is fully God and fully man, we have no choice but recenter our lives on the person of Christ. Man, this isn't about all the material possessions and what the world has made it. No, this is about a promise a promise that God gave back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That when the babe was born in Bethlehem, God was fulfilling his promise. That he was sending a Messiah to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that was ours to die, so that we could all reign with him forever. It should recenter our lives on the person of Christ. The second thing it should do is it should remove any fear of the penalty of death. Paul said it best, for me to live is Christ, but for me to die is gain. I don't have to fear death because I have eternal life with him forever. And then finally, it reassures us of Jesus' deep love for us. Ma'am, sir, maybe you came in here today and quite frankly, I tried to spend the first half of this reminding you of how guilty, ungodly, and sinful you are. But I don't want you to leave focused on how guilty and shameful and sinful and ungodly you are. I want you to leave to knowing or knowing that God loves you so much that even in your guilt and even in your shame and even in your sin and even in your ungodliness that he had a plan. And his plan was to clothe himself in human flesh. To be born through a virgin woman, Holy Spirit conceived. To walk the same earth and face the same temptations that you and I have walked and faced, but to do so without sin. And then to go to the cross as an innocent one, to take on your sin upon himself, die there. But praise God, he did not stay dead. He resurrected three days later, that's Easter, so that you and I could be victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave forever and ever, and ever. Isn't that good news? So ma'am, sir, today, the greatest need of your life isn't the gift that's under the tree at your mom and daddy's house. The greatest gift in your life is the free gift that was offered by the hands of the greatest God. And he gives it to you to be the recipient if only you will trust and take it.